Almighty God, today we come together in your worship space, the space that we created so that we can meet you here. We know we can meet you anywhere, Lord. We know that you are with us always, that the Holy Spirit is in us. And yet we've created spaces like these where we can be one body united for one purpose, to sing your praise, to celebrate your love, to hear your word, and to join you in what you are doing. And so as we pray together today, Lord, we're mindful of those who are going through difficult times, those whose diagnosis has created fear and sudden change, perhaps loss, those whose bodies have been racked with illness, whose sickness has prevented them from living to their fullest potential. We pray for those who are struggling in some personal way with some bad habit or some sort of uh, personal relational issue. Lord, we understand, as Scripture will testify, that Satan will create doubt and angst in relationships, especially those that are ordained by God. And we understand, Lord, that he'll create confusion and temptation. And so we ask, Lord, for your holy power to resist confusion and temptation. Eyes to see the truth and ears to understand what is and was and always will be. Well, God, hear us as we pray together for those who struggle with financial troubles, with work-related troubles, with, with life trouble, difficulty with the necessities of life, the roof over our head, the food on our table, the warmth that we need in the cold weather, the shelter from the storm. Lord, we pray for your help not only in meeting those needs, but interpreting the importance of certain things. In other words, Lord, we ask you to help us prioritize with godly priorities. Oh God, many have gathered here today in your name with much on their minds that I cannot know, but you know. And since we've joined together to seek your will and to join you in your work, we ask in the name of Jesus that each prayer be answered with the truth and that guidance is given toward the outcome that you desire. And because we have gathered in Jesus' name, we gladly close with his words that were taught to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Here we go. Matthew 4. Starting at verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's easy to forget sometimes that Jesus was tempted like us. We find it difficult to imagine him being tempted like us, probably because we imagine that he's got some sort of superpower, that he has the superior ability to resist sin. And so we make light of even this story of this temptation that Jesus experienced. Now, I'm going to argue that Jesus experienced temptation just like we experienced it. The only difference is that it takes so much less to tempt us, that it's just easier to tempt us than it is to tempt Jesus. That Jesus was in every way tempted like us, but the temptations were much bigger. There was a lot more at stake in his temptation. And so what we want to try to grasp from this reading today then is why would Jesus even have to struggle against sin? How would that be beneficial to us in the grand scheme of things? And then we have to wrap our minds around what is the nature of temptation anyway? So let's take a look at that first by considering what happens when anybody starts a quest, let's say, to really follow faithfully in the footsteps that God has laid before you or the path that God has laid before you. Remember last week we were talking about the baptism of Jesus and we were talking about how he became uh, convinced at that point that he was ready to go, that it was time to begin his, his specific ministry and the specific things that he would do. He found certain people to walk with him along the way. He had a very definite plan and he had confirmation from heaven that he was in fact the son of God. And then he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, who led him into the wilderness to be tempted? That's a question that could be asked. And what was the purpose of being led into the wilderness for temptation? Well, if you think about it, whenever anybody makes a firm commitment to a new way of life or to a specific task, there's almost certain to be opposition. We will, in fact, see that over the next month or so in the life of the United Methodist Church because there will be those who have chosen a path that they believe is correct in 
favor of the Book of Discipline as it's written and those who are in opposition to the Book of Discipline as it is written. And both have become very convicted of their, their belief about such things. And you will see how at the times of most critical decisions, there will be the greatest tests. That's just kind of how things flow in a natural way. If you are at work and you're part of a, a strategy that was not popular with everybody on the team, then you're going to keep seeing resistance from some of the other people. It's natural. And the greatest leaders are the ones who can bring along their, those who dissent, even while they dissent. But at the end of the day, we're looking at more spiritual matters. And so what we realize is, is that if you are choosing a path that honors God and you're making a specific decision to live in a way that serves and glorifies God, Satan will bring up resistance. It could be said in one way that you offered no particular resistance to Satan when you were not in favor of a particular lifestyle that glorified God. Therefore, once you begin to model your life after Jesus and really commit yourself to glorifying God in the way that you live, you've become a problem for Satan that you once were not. And so he's going to put up resistance. He's going to show you opportunities to change your decision. You remember last week we talked about the baptism of, re of repentance that, go, that was preached by John the Baptist and how those who repented were those who chose to go in a different way. They were moving in a certain direction and they chose to go in a different way and they made a very public statement of their choice. And then one of the things that naturally happens is that they find themselves being tested. Jesus is being tested in the same way, but the, the stakes are so much higher. The, the game is so much bigger than the one you're going to watch on TV later today. It's way more at stake than who wins the Super Bowl. Look at what happened. First of all, understand that the one who is tempting him is the one the Old Testament has already identified as the tempter, as the deceiver, as the accuser. Remember when I told you about Ho-Satan? Ha-Satan, the accuser with that big, ugly, pointy, bony finger of accusation. What did he say to, to Jesus? Did you hear what Satan said to him? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Did you hear that? Now think of yourself for a moment and imagine yourself if this is about the temptation of Jesus, then what is it that Jesus is being tempted toward here? Is he being tempted to doubt that he is, in fact, the Son of God? Is, is that why Satan is taking that particular tack? Tacking is a sailing term. Choosing a particular path. Why is Satan trying to cause him to doubt whether he is in fact the son of God. Maybe because he's hungry. Try to imagine that you have always been in a realm where hunger was not known to you, where pain and sickness were not known to you, where you were always comfortable, if so much so that you wouldn't even have a premise for describing comfort because it just is. And then in this 
heightened moment of, of physical sensation, you find yourself hungry and tired and susceptible to Satan's accusation, if you're the son of God. Jesus does what any of us should do. He immediately refers to the word of God, and the word of God says that what the accusation seems to frame isn't really what we're talking about. In other words, Satan is trying to reframe Jesus's perception of things in the same way as he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He, he said, did, did God say you would die if you ate this fruit? Well, that was never really the question. That was never really the discussion. God just said, don't, <laughs> you know? And at that point, it was a question of obedience to God, but then Satan reframes it. And he, he asks a more poignant question in a sense that he's directed it in a way that activates the fear within the two people. You know, when you can peep, when you can peak people's fear, if you can tap into people's fears, which is then bordering on grief and loss, well, once you've got people afraid, you can get them to buy into all kinds of silly things. That's a matter of human history. And it always originates with the lie from the evil one, Satan. And so he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, then you can make bread out of these stones. And Jesus replies with the word of God and says, no, that's not what this is about anyway. You're trying to change the subject. You're trying to reframe the discussion so that it goes the way you want it to go. What's the discussion? Well, we're going to get into fasting in a second, but, but what a fast is, after all, and, a, and, and this kind of fast in particular, is a time to focus all of your attention and energy on one thing so that you can be solely devoted to that thing, in this case, to God, and fulfilling God's call upon your life and the specific purpose God has to, for you to fulfill. So at the very end, Satan concedes that he is the son of God. Now, the reason I could say that is because the third temptation didn't involve the question, are you the son of God, if you're the son of God? Because the third question says, okay, so you're the son of God. Well, I'll give you everything. I'll let you have power over all of this. Let's think for a moment again about what the temptation is. What was Jesus thinking? Maybe he's thinking after the second temptation, I've already got Satan on the ropes, so now I think it's pretty clear I am the Son of God. And so the temptation then is, is and as the Son of God, I could, I could rule all of this. Now, I know it's hard to think of Jesus this way, and part of the reason that it's impossible or difficult for us to think of Jesus this way is because of the fact that he didn't give in to the temptation. So we say, well, see, he didn't do it. That means he's better than that. Thank goodness, or we'd be all in trouble right now, that we'd have no savior. But the fact is, is he was tempted. It says so plainly. And here's the thing that gets me. When I think about this story, I realize that it happened in isolation. It appears that Jesus was alone in the wilderness, 
with nothing but those temptations from Satan for 40 days. So the only reason we know this story is because he came back and he told his friends and his friends told us. And why did he tell his friends about this? And how would it have been to have heard the story as it was told by Jesus to his friends? Well, guys, I was tempted. Satan was tempting me. He was, he was tempting me to use the power I know that I can call down and turn the, the rocks into bread. He was tempting me to throw myself off a cliff and wait for the angels to catch me. He was tempting me to take command of the world. That, see, that's the way he would have told the story, right? You know, and then his friends retold it to us in the third person, because that's how you write a story in that particular vein. And, and, but what he said to his friends was, you know, this is real. Even for me, this temptation is real. This problem of sin is real. It happens. Now, the thing about Jesus is he didn't cave. He didn't give in. He was rewarded for his faithfulness. And because of his particular unique nature, his reward was delivered by the angels. But, but the purpose of the story, I think, is to let us understand that, that even Jesus experienced temptation that was real, very real. But he chose a different path than ours because we we cave don't we i don't know about you but i've known some people over the years who have been masters of justification they can do whatever they want as long as they can justify it and boy they are skillful at justifying it i mean they can make it make sense and you can buy right into their justification if you want to and sometimes they can make you suffer if you don't. But at the end of the day, truth is truth. Jesus understood who he was and who God was and who everything, how all of this is supposed to play out. And, and he understood that. And even at his moment of greatest weakness, he did not surrender the truth to some form of justification. There will be moments when we'll sin consciously and say, well, I know God will forgive me, but he'll understand that I just couldn't resist. Okay. And, and listen, this is one of those where the mirror could be in the front pew because I'm talking to me too. I mean, we've all had these moments when we caved in on something we knew in our hearts we shouldn't do and then afterwards we're really grateful that God had more mercy and grace than we had discipline and self-control. Perhaps this is why the New Testament letters so often speak of self-control and discipline. Because sin is something that has to be actively resisted and it has to be resisted with the same methods Jesus used with prayer and fasting, with with knowledge of the Word of God, and let me teach this really quickly. It isn't just that you become an expert on the Bible. It's very helpful if you know your Bible really well. But understand the heart and mind of God. Understand who God is, because that's the real expression of the Word of God. The Word with a capital W, it means Logos with a capital L. It means the mind of God. It means that the heart and mind of God are being expressed to us through Scripture. 
And as it is expressed through scripture and other means, maybe even this message, it is meant to help us understand what's on the heart and mind of God so that we can be prepared for moments like the one Jesus experienced. I talked about fasting and I just want to spend a second or two on that and say that if you've ever thought about fasting or tried fasting, you know, how did it go? Was it a good experience for you? Did it turn into something that was meaningful for you in a spiritual sense? Um, you know, perhaps you fasted for a blood test or something, but I'm talking about something a little more involved than that. Now, you should understand that the scripture does not, as, as far as I can tell, the scripture doesn't require fasting. It doesn't say to any Christian, especially, that you should fast and that you should participate in certain fasts on a regular basis or anything. It doesn't really indicate that. But it does make it very clear to us that fasting is beneficial. So in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about Lent and we'll talk about fasting. We'll talk about give up, giving up certain things for a season. And the idea behind fasting always returns to this. It's about being entirely focused on God instead of myself. And so a fast is literally what Jesus did, which is to go into a time of reclusiveness, away from the world and all of the stuff that distracts us, and to limit the food that we receive and the water we receive and to literally focus our energy on God. What energy we have, that's the idea behind the fast. Now, I suppose I should say, talk to your doctor before you try something like that. But the point that I really wanna drive home here is, is that if you try fasting, do it wisely, do it carefully, but understand that the most important aspect of a fast is not the mechanism or the means or, or the how, but the why. It's important that you do it because you wish to find a way to really focus yourself on the Lord. I will tell you that I've done my share of fasting over the years, and some have been more successful than others. But something that really changed my mind about this topic occurred when I read a book that didn't have anything to do with fasting. I just finished a book recently called Unbroken, which is the story of Louis, Louis Zamperini. Now, some of you have probably seen that movie that came out. Louis Zamperini was a uh, world-class track athlete who was drafted into the military in World War II crashed his plane at sea. It's a long story, but he and his crew were stranded at sea. Only three of them survived the crash. And eventually only two survived and they stayed in a small raft floating in the South Pacific for days and days and days, well into almost two months. And here's a quote from that book that really got my attention because it made me think differently about fasting. Louis found the raft offered an unlikely intellectual refuge. He had never recognized how noisy the civilized world was. Here, drifting in almost total silence with no sense other than the singed odor of the raft, no flavors on his tongue, nothing moving but the slow procession of shark fins, every vista empty save water and sky, 
his time unvaried and unbroken. His mind was freed of an encumbrance that civilization had imposed on it. In his head, he could roam anywhere, and he found that his mind was quick and clear, his imagination unfettered and supple. He could stay with a thought for hours, turning it about. Now, as I heard that passage, as I read that passage, I thought, my gosh, maybe the whole point of a fast is to bring you to that point of total focus, to bring you to a point that only a man who is dehydrated and starving in the middle of the ocean on a tiny raft can be, to try to get yourself to something like that so that you can really think clearly and hear clearly the voice of God. You know, eventually Louis Zamperini cried out to God in desperation and then later felt convicted to keep his promise and he spent the rest of his life, which ended just a few years ago at an old age, teaching people about Jesus. He even went to Japan and personally forgave those who had tortured and tormented him in the prison camps. So what I think about when I think of Jesus fasting, when I think of us fasting, when I think of us going into to some state of mind like that is, is that there's great power in self-sacrifice, way more than we're willing to test. This surrender of self and giving oneself over to God has enormous potential that we'll never really experience until we're courageous enough to suffer the crossover from self-centered life to God-centered life. So understand that it will always come with temptation, that Jesus even experienced temptation like that. And understand that he was wise enough and informed enough to resist what his feelings were informing him and focus on the facts. Too often we let our feelings dictate our behavior instead of the facts. Feelings are pretty important. They cause us to have empathy. They have a way of causing us to do noble things, but they can also cause us to do really foolish things. So let us focus on facts along with those feelings as Jesus did and resist all urges to toward temptation, especially when it so clearly comes from Satan. Let us pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Now burn that upon our heart, truly your mind, so that we can understand and know exactly where you would have us to be and what you would call us to do for your sake. Amen.